Good morning. It is a real privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for opening our eyes that we can see you. I thank you for inviting us here to, to celebrate such an amazing love, uh, such amazing grace for us. Father, I thank you for giving us your word that we're not left in the dark. Father, I pray that you would be at work among us this morning, that you'd bless your word, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, to speak to us, to nourish us with your word for your glory, that we might have your inexpressible joy. In your son's name we pray, amen. I want to tell you about an experience for me growing up when, uh, when I was young, our family had the chance to live out in California for a little while, and uh, we lived in the mountains above the Los Angeles area in a small town called Crestline, and it was a, a well-named town because the town was kind of on the crest of the mountains, and you could look out over San Bernardino and Los Angeles, and depending upon the smog, you might even be able to see the, the ocean, right? It was an incredible place, beautiful views. And in fact, um, the, the highway that went along the, uh, the, the, the edge of these mountains was called Rim of the World Highway. My sister actually went to Rim of the World High School, and it was this sense that you're kind of on the edge of things because you're, you know, right here it drops off, and this beautiful view off into the distance. Uh, at least that was the theory. Um, as I recall, when we first moved there, it seemed like for the first week, we saw nothing but clouds, I mean, we were in the midst of the clouds. It was a dense soup, you know, this type of thing that you can, it's so thick you can cut it. You couldn't see a thing, right? The left side of the road and the right side of the road, they looked exactly the same, right? One could be a drop-off, one could be a sheer cliff going up, but you wouldn't know it because you couldn't see that far. And so when you drove, what you had to do is follow the white line on the side of the road, right? I figure as long as that right, the white line stays on the right side of the car and not too far away, I should be fine. And then you come to an intersection, <laughs> and the lines stop in the intersection, and so you just hope you're going straight enough that that line will start again when you get to the other side because you couldn't see anything, right? We were told this beautiful view you could see so far, all these great things to see, and we couldn't see more than 10 yards ahead. Then uh, with our own kids, we, um, I had the chance to teach in Switzerland up in the, in the Alps, this beautiful little village up in the midst of the Alps, the idea, you wake up in the morning, you look out the window, and there are these gorgeous mountains. Except that yet again, <laughs> we were in the clouds. You couldn't see anything. I mean, it seemed to go on for a week. All you could see is this grassy slope and then clouds. We could have done that in Michigan, right? <laughs> we didn't need to go to the Alps to see a grassy slope and clouds. It, it, we're told all these beautiful views, this, this wonderful vista, and all we can see is clouds. Well, that's actually what I've learned is the Christian life is often like that, right? We're told about these beautiful vistas, these wonderful views, all these wonderful things, and yet all I see is clouds. Maybe you know what I mean. We're told we're forgiven, but I still feel guilty. I still feel a horrible regret for something I've done. I'm told that I am loved by the creator of the universe, yet I'm lonely, right? Yet I, I feel a distance from somebody I care about, I'm told that God has a wonderful plan for my life, and yet I'm lost. I can't find my way, right? I, 
I live in the midst of a fog, and I'm told of these beautiful views that we have, but I can't see them, right? Very often in the Christian life, these, these wonderful things are blocked behind clouds, and I can't see past them. And what do we do? A question I have is, what do you say to people who are having this experience? What do you say to your kids when this is what they feel like, this is what they see, right? What do you say to your parents when this is what they see, to your friends, to... What do you say to yourself when this is what you experience? When our kids were little, we, uh, we enjoyed the book Lily's Purple Plastic Purse. And if you've ever read the story, it's a very sweet story about this girl who has a very hard day in school. And the moral of the story is, today may have been hard, but tomorrow will be better. It's a really nice story, a very nice sentiment. Is that the hope we have? Yeah, I know you're in a cloud right now, but I'm sure it's going to get better. Right? Is that the best we have to offer? Is that really true? What do we say? What should we say that has authority that says, here's how to think about life when the clouds block your view? To answer that question, we're going to look at 1 Peter 1 this morning. If you'd turn there, that would be fantastic. If you grab a, a Bible out of the, the pew rack in front of you, it's page 180, way over to the right side, 1 Peter 1. As you're turning there, let me uh, set the stage for you a minute in terms of what the people were like to whom Peter was writing. Peter says he's writing to, to, to strangers, to exiles, some of the translations to say, to people who are scattered about. And my initial thought with this is that he's talking to Jews that were kicked out of Rome because we know a whole bunch of Jews were in Rome and then they were made to leave. And it could be that some of that is in view, but he later on in the book says, I'm writing to you people who inherited a futile way of thinking from your forefathers. A rather strange thing for Peter to say about what they had inherited from the Jews, right? That's a typical way to talk about people who were non-Jewish people. It seems that Peter is talking to a bunch of people that may actually never have left home. And yet, because they've become Christians, they're no longer at home there, right? There, there are people trying to live by faith in the midst of people who are living by sight. And so they know the language, they know the customs, and yet it doesn't fit anymore, Right? They're living as strangers in their own land. He goes on to say, I'm writing to people who are experiencing various kinds of trials. And, and you're grieved by these trials. They're tough times in life. He says, I'm writing to people who are like that, who are experiencing difficult times. And my first thought is, well, he's probably talking about Christians who are being thrown to the lions when they confess Christ, or they're being uh, arrested and put in jail, never to be seen again. And it seems that perhaps he's not actually necessarily talking about things so severe. Later on in the book, he says, you know what, most of the time when you do what's right, people are fine with that. Actually, they encourage you. They say, good, I want to reward you for doing good things. Sometimes, he said, when you do what's right, life gets hard, right? It's, it's challenging. They persecute you, and that's what I want to talk about. So it seems that, he says, I'm talking about all kinds of trials, many of which might be the same kinds of trials we experience today whether it's people who mock us for our faith or belittle us for our faith or say, hey, you claim to be a Christian and yet look at how you're living. Or what about all these hypocrites? Or maybe it's just the difficulty of life itself. Right? Peter says, I'm writing to people who are experiencing all sorts of trials, all sorts of different things, kind of like us. And then he goes on to say, I'm writing to people who can't see God. Now, nobody can see God because God doesn't have a body, right? He, he's not visible by the eye, so he's not talking about people who literally couldn't see God. He's talking about people who can't see God in life, right? 
they look at life and they say, I can't see the hand of God in this. All I see is a cloud, right? He's writing to people whose present circumstances make it really hard to see the reality of God, right? Because very often that's what we live. We live a life where present circumstances cloud out what is ours in Christ. All we see is the difficulty around us. We don't see beyond it. He's writing to people who are much like us. I was talking to a friend not long ago who really sensed that God was calling him to go to seminary. He went to seminary, and when he got done, he couldn't get the kind of job that he thought he was being prepared to do. And he thought maybe further education along these lines is, is what God has for me, and yet he couldn't get accepted to the programs that he wanted to go to, and he was at a dead end. He says, I, I thought God was leading me this way, and yet now all I can see in this cloud that I'm in is a dead end. I don't know where to go. He says, why didn't they tell me it would be like this? <laughs> right? Sometimes following God is exactly like that. We say, I thought this was the path to go, and now I've hit a dead end. Maybe in a job, maybe in ministry, maybe in a marriage, maybe a relationship. You follow, and it seems to hit a dead end. And here's the real problem. It's all the harder when I see people for whom the hand of God is very clear. I met a couple of missionaries' families, uh, families a while back, and um, serving on the same team overseas. One, they came home for uh, uh, furlough. They had home assignment. And when they were home on home assignment, their son died. Very young son. They weren't prepared for this at all. And all of a sudden, he's dead. And it was tragic. I mean, it was horrible. How, how do you deal with this? And then they had to go back to the mission field with this giant hole in their family. And how do they do that? On the same team, there was a family who, similar circumstance, except their daughter was miraculously saved. She was so close to dying, and yet, at just the right time, somebody did the right thing, and they didn't even really know why they did it, and it saved her life. So for the first family, you look at the second family and say, isn't it wonderful how you saw the hand of God save your daughter's life? But what about us? Why didn't God do that for us? We're in a dark spot. We can't see that hand of God. Two different men, uh, both in ministry, working overseas completely independently, but had similar experiences. One was in a terrible auto accident. And as he described it to me, he was without a pulse for seven or eight minutes, something like this. I mean, he was dead. Somehow he was revived. And when he was revived, then they were dealing with him in the hospital, and they said, your femur is so shattered that you are going to be in excruciating pain and recovery It's going to take it's going to take maybe two months for you to even leave the hospital the first time and it's going to be a horrible path of of recovery for you because you are in such bad shape. Three weeks later, he was off on a hiking camping trip with his family and everything was fine. Just an amazing, miraculous recovery. Second man, similar situation, horrible uh, auto accident overseas, ended up in intensive care in a hospital overseas for months before he could even come home to begin his recovery. And the real tragedy is that what he loved to do in ministry before, he could no longer do because he was a different person. And so for the second man, you say, where's the hand of God in this, right? I'm barely surviving. And this man, for some reason, miraculously, everything is better, right? It's very challenging when I look in my circle of light and say, I can't see the hand of God here. Some people can, and I'm I'm happy for them, but sometimes it's hard for me to be happy for them, frankly, Because why don't I get to see that? Because sometimes present circumstances in life make it very hard to see the hand of God. 
That's the kind of person Peter was writing to, right? That's what life was like for them. So here's what Peter has to say to these people. First Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Stop there for a second. Peter says, I'm writing to you. And I'm not writing to you, I'm writing to you as an apostle, not as somebody who says, you know, I've known you guys for quite a while and I've observed some things about your lives. Let me tell you what seems to make sense to me. He's not saying, I've lived a long time in this Christianity thing and I've experienced a lot of things. Let me tell you some of what I've learned along the road. Peter says, no, I'm going to speak to you from God himself. I'm going to speak as an apostle. This is God's word for you. Peter says, this is what God wants to say to you. So he says, I'm writing to you as we looked at as aliens, people who are scattered about, and, and these are people for whom the life they live now doesn't match what they thought, what they think, what they believe is true. What they see doesn't line up with that. They're looking in the, the fog and they're not seeing the hand of God. These are people who are scattered about, and these are a bunch of areas. It's not just one church. It's people who, in a range of experiences, northern Turkey, uh, he says, I'm writing to you folks who are chosen. He says, I'm not writing to you as people who just happen to, to stumble along this Christianity thing and maybe you latched onto it. He says, no, I'm writing to you with people who are chosen, who are elect, who, whom God said, here's one. And then he describes what this is like, this choosing. He says, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Sometimes people look at this and say, well, so what that means is that God has the ability to look to the future. So God goes, he's in the past and he looks to the future and says, oh, there's somebody who's going to someday believe in me. I'll pick that one, right? That that's the foreknowledge of God. I think that's severely to misunderstand what the foreknowledge of God is. The foreknowledge of God is not merely awareness of things before they happen. The knowledge of God makes things happen, right? Why do I think that? Peter uses the same word down in verse 20. He says that God has foreknown before the foundation of the world that the Messiah would come. Right? God didn't look ahead to when the Messiah would come and say, oh, that's a cool thing that's going to happen. I'll choose him. No, God in the Godhead said, here's our plan. The Son is going to come as the Messiah. Right? God foreknew the Messiah. That is, he chose ahead of time by his knowledge, and his knowledge made it happen. Peter says, that's you. That God, by his foreknowledge, chose you. He says he chose you through the sanctif- by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's not because you're a special person. It's not because you had great faith. It's not because of anything great about you. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit that changes you from being one rejected by God to one accepted by God by the Holy Spirit. You see this great Trinitarian view of this choosing by God. It's by God's foreknowledge. It's by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And now this third one is a little bit challenging to understand. Uh, the Greek is a, a little bit challenging and so different translations translate it differently. New American Standard says it's the purpose of this choosing is for obedience so that you would obey Jesus Christ. And it, it could be that, but actually I think the way the King James translates it, it's a a better way to understand it, is that it actually is based on the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. Not our obedience to Christ, 
but by the obedience of Jesus Christ and his blood that's sprinkled on us. See, in the, in the Old Testament view of things, the way you establish a covenant is you sprinkle blood on the people. Right? You would sprinkle the blood on the people and it says, now you're covered by this covenant. It's not their blood. It's the blood of the sacrifice. Peter's saying, you've been chosen by God in the Trinity, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, by the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that's been spread across you. That's how you've been chosen, he says. And he says, may grace and peace abound to you. May it just be overflowing to you, to you people who currently are living in a cloud and you can't see it. So what does he say? Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Stop there for a second. Peter says, I'm just overwhelmed with praise for God the Father because of his plan. And here was his plan. He said, according to God's great mercy, not according to your greatness, not according to your goodness, but according to his mercy, he's caused you to be born again. That phrase, the way we understand it in English, is a little bit challenging because you know, I work with computers a lot. And one of the things that I think is really cool with computers is that you can back up in time. You know, the um, uh, Apple platform, they actually talk about a time machine, right? So I messed up, I deleted the wrong file, let's go back in time and start over again. And now we can move forward from that point, right? Oh, how I wish I had that in life. (laughs) Today did not go well, let's just undo that and try that again, right? That's what being born again sometimes sounds like to me, right? I tried my life once, it didn't turn out so well, why don't we try it again? Give me a clean slate. Literally, what Peter says is that God chose to beget you anew. God chose to say, now you're my child, right? You had a different father before, but now you're my child. God chose to beget us. It's not merely that we went back and started over again. He says, now you have a completely different kind of life because you have a different father. It's not just a chance to try it again. It's something brand new. On the mercy of God, he says, God has caused you to be born again to become his child, a new father. According to this, this, this life, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is a living hope, not, not a hope that, boy, we sure hope that it works, but a certain hope, a, a, a hope that is rock solid. It's a living, dynamic hope. He says, that's what you have because you have a new father, and it is just like the power that brought Jesus back from the dead. That's the kind of hope you have, he says. That's the new life that you have. And he says, in this new life, because you have a new father, you have a new inheritance. You're going to obtain an inheritance, he says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He says, this one cannot die. I was just in an airport shuttle listening to some some, uh, retirees going on a cruise. And, you know, they joked, we're spending our kids' inheritance, right? Well, our, our earthly inheritance can go all sorts of different ways. Our parents might spend it. <laughs> our parents might put it in Facebook stock and then it keeps going down. I mean, who knows what happens to it, but it, our inheritance may perish, right? It might disappear on us. There might be litigation. I have a friend that, that all the kids are, are suing each other over the inheritance. None of the kids are gonna get it, 
Somebody else will, but not them. It might perish. Peter says the inheritance you have cannot perish. It cannot be lost. It, it won't go down in value. It's certain, he says. He says this inheritance is undefiled. Right? It is not something that can get messed up. It's not something that when you touch, touch it, you ruin it. We have a new puppy. Um, okay, she's a little bit big to be called a puppy still, but we like to imagine. When I play with her, she's rather slobbery. And so my hands get all covered with this slobber and I have this really strong urge to go wash them, right? I don't go into the house and say, hey, can I help you all unload the dishwasher? Here, let me help you fold the laundry. You know, we'll do all these great things. No, I'll defile anything I touch, right? Because my hands are horrible. I want to wash them. Peter says, this inheritance can't be defiled, right? My fear is that I'm like the kid that, you know, I've, I've had a bunch of chocolate candy and now I'm coming in to open my, my, my birthday present and it's, you know, this beautiful sweater and my chocolate hands are getting all over everything, right? Peter says, this inheritance is not defiled. You touch it, you can't hurt it, right? It's, there's something amazing about this inheritance that is protected. It will not, it, it will not perish. It will not get spoiled. And he says, it will not fade, I was very encouraged to uh, see that uh, something like hundreds of people went to see Jordan Weaver at, at the, the airport uh, this past week to welcome her home and to honor her. And that's fantastic, but a couple of weeks ago, it was millions of people cheering for her, right? Now we're down to hundreds of people cheering for her, and I'm sure at the start of school, it will be an exciting time, but gold medals fade amazingly fast. It's hard to imagine that you'd have the whole world watching you cheering and pretty soon, people ignore it, right? And so as I understand it, Michael Phelps after Beijing came back with all these gold medals and pretty soon, he's depressed because it fades, right? And that's the way the, the inheritance that we have here, the valuable things we have here, they fade. Peter says this inheritance will not fade. It'll be just as great in a thousand years as it is today. It will not fade. He says, because you've got a new father, you've got a new inheritance, and this inheritance is, in fact, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He says, it's kept in heaven for you. God says, I'm protecting this one, right? This one is saved for you. He says, I'm keeping it in heaven for you. And frankly, I think, okay, that's great, but what if I mess up, right? God's protecting it for me there, but what if I mess up? What if I'm on the wrong path? What if I go wrong? Verse five, I just love. He says, this is protected in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. He says, you are being protected by the power of God, by the creator of the universe, the one who brought Jesus Christ from death to life. That power is protecting you, right? It's not a risk anymore. I don't have to say, boy, I sure hope I hang in there because he says, you're being protected by the power of God. He says, through faith. But get this, he doesn't say, by faith. You aren't protected by faith. My faith has zero power. So imagine going over to a store and buying an extension cord. Say, isn't this great? Now I can handle a power outage. Right, if we have a storm, the power goes out, I've got an extension cord, so I'm fine. There's no power in an extension cord until it's plugged in. And in our house, for some reason, we have all these switched outlets. So you go to the wall and you plug into this outlet and it doesn't work unless the light switch is on. I don't know, I don't understand it. I never know which one is which. And so you have to say, is it really gonna work when I plug into this outlet, right? Because there's no power unless I plug into something that has 
power. Peter says, you are being protected by the power of God himself through your faith, but there's no power in that faith. It's, it's power of God flowing through your faith as you trust him. And he says, this is, through faith, you're being protected for a salvation ready to be revealed. And the last time, he says, it's just sitting there. It's just waiting. It's like the parents who have bought a present and they're so excited and it's just waiting, protected, so the kids don't find it. That's what God has for us. It's a salvation. It's all set. It's just waiting to be unwrapped. Peter says, that's yours. So verse six, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter says, this great news, this inheritance that we have, you rejoice in that, and rightly so. But he says, I know that you are also being distressed by these trials. They're, they're, they're things that bring grief, and sometimes following God is the very thing that brings you grief. You think this is the path to be on, it seems to lead to a dead end, and you can't see anything. Peter says, I know that's what you're experiencing. He says, you greatly rejoice in this, even if knowing that sometimes you're facing these trials. He says, so that the proof of your faith, the proof of your faith, I, I love the English Standard Version, says the tested genuineness of your faith. He says, these trials are to prove your faith. So in, in the Olympics, when you have the, the, the weightlifting, how do you know how much somebody can lift in terms of weight? You put more weight on the bar and say, pick it up, right? It's not a cruelty to start with a lot of weight on the bar, that's a huge honor, right? If I go up and they, you know, are gonna put the weight on it, they're gonna put very little weight on it because I don't have the power to lift much. If you put a lot of weight on the bar, this is an honor to the weightlifter because it says, we're gonna prove how strong you are, not try to trip you up. Peter says that's what your trials are like. They're to prove the genuineness of your faith. He compares it to gold, one of the most valuable things, and yet he says, we put it through the fire both to get rid of impurities, but also to, pure, to, to show that this really is gold, right? He says, these trials are to show that what you have is real. Not to try to trip you up, not because you've messed up in life, but because this is an opportunity to show the reality of God's work in your life, that you have a genuine faith. And then this is just amazing. He says, here's the outcome of the tested genuineness of your faith says, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Whose praise and honor and glory is this? I'm completely used to the idea that at the revelation of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. But he will also share his glory with us. Did you catch that? He says, this is a praise and an honor and glory that comes as a result of people who have faith in trials. We know that, that God is a God who loves to share his glory. He says, come, enjoy my glory with me. It's kind of like in a wedding. The, the, the groom doesn't say, hey, everybody's here to see me. No, the groom says, look at my wife. And in the, in, in the, 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 the resurrection that's coming, 
Jesus is going to say, I'm sharing my glory with my bride. He says, come, enjoy my glory with me. It's an amazing thing that our God does. He invites us into that. So imagine that in the the resurrection, it's kind of like the gold medal ceremony. The lamb stands out in center and we all sing the praise to the lamb. And then the lamb says, hey, would you come on up here with me? Enjoy this glory with me. Come enjoy this with me as my loved bride. When I think of the people I love, I can't imagine something better for them. I can't imagine anything better for them. This is an amazing thing. Peter says, this is what's in store for you. A God who loves you so much, he can't wait to share his glory with you. Not because you're great, but because he is, right? It's an amazing thing. He says, this is what is waiting for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus doesn't say, I needed these people to do this stuff, but he says, they are evidence of the good work that has been done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I love to have them with me. So what's it look like to follow this way? He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Perhaps he's saying to these people, you never saw Jesus Christ. You never saw him in the flesh. You've read about him. You've heard about him. And you love him. You say, he's the one I follow. He says, that's what it looks like. He says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him, right? These are people, again, who are are looking at life around them in the fog, and they say, I can't see the hand of God right now. I know the inheritance is there, but I can't see it, and yet I still believe, right? That's what it looks like. The tested genuineness of your faith is I'm in a tough spot, but I continue to say I trust God and I'll follow him. That's the tested genuineness of your faith. And he says, as you do that, you can have an inexpressible joy because you're going to obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this isn't merely the salvation that says I've escaped hell. It's the salvation that says I will be brought into the love and community of the Godhead itself. And I'll be a part of that. I will enjoy the glory and love of God himself firsthand. Peter says that gives us joy we don't even know how to express. And I can't think of anything I could ever wish for anybody that would be better than that. And Peter says, it's yours. It's already yours as soon as you have said, this is the path I take. I entrust my life to God himself through Christ. He says from that moment, it's yours. We won't take the time to look at these next couple of verses, but he says, let me tell you about how amazing this salvation is. He says, you go back to the Old Testament and all these prophets who who talked about what was coming. He said, they desperately wanted to see what you see. They desperately wanted to know what this was going to look like. They desperately wanted to know this. All they knew was the broad shape of things. They wanted a New Testament so badly, and now we have it. And it's ours. I mean, it's an amazing thing that we get to see what Isaiah and Jeremiah and and Abraham wanted to see, and we get to see it. But their experience is much like ours. They saw some of the shape of what's to come, but not all of it. We see more of the shape of what's to come, but not all of it. We still live in a sense of a cloud like they did, but here's what they understood. Do you see this in the middle of verse 11? It says, they were trying to figure this out when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I love that expression. Even Jesus himself experienced sufferings followed by glory. 
Right? Even Jesus himself said, God, I'm having a hard time seeing your hand in this right now, but I still believe it because I'm confident in the glory that will follow. The experience of the prophets is the same as the experience of Jesus, the same as our experience. Some days we live in the fog, but we know that when that fog clears, there's gonna be an amazing inheritance that's already ours. We just can't see it yet. And he says it's such an amazing thing, even the angels wanna know what it's like. Don't you love it? This is something destined for us, and the angels are saying, boy, I wish I knew what that was like. I know the general shape, but boy, I wanna see what's inside that present. Peter says, we have an amazing inheritance that is ours. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter says, therefore. Uh, it's been said that every command in Christianity follows a therefore. Right? Every command follows a declaration of truth. We're not just supposed to do things because they're good things to do. We're supposed to do things because of the truth. And if you can see the truth, what we're told to do is the only thing that actually makes sense to do anyway. Right? It's not arbitrary. It's because it's right. Every command in Christianity says, here's what's true. So what does Peter say here? Here's what's true. You have an inheritance. I know you can't see it right now, but it's beyond your comprehension and it's guaranteed and it's already yours. You just can't see it yet. Given that, he says, here's how you should live. Right? Not just live this way, but given this amazing reality, here's how you should live. And he says the central command here is, put your hope fully in the grace to be brought to you. Fix your hope completely on this. And then in front of this, he gives two ways to do that. He says, prepare your minds for action. Uh, you know, when people are engaged in sports, they know this really well. You don't step into a, a sporting event without preparing yourself. Whether it's that specific event where you stretch or you put on your pads or you know, you've gone through all these practices, you don't just go out the first game of the season and say, okay, let's play. You prepare yourself for it. You know when you have a, an interaction with somebody that's gonna be a challenging one. You prepare yourself for it. You think through, how should I say this? And you pray, and, and you're doing all these things. You don't just step into it and say, well, let's see what happens. Right? You're foolish if you do that. Peter says, prepare for life. Why? Because very often, present circumstances make it hard to see God. Prepare yourself for that. Prepare yourself for those circumstances where I can't see God, and yet I know he's there. Prepare your minds for this action, he says. He says, keep sober in spirit. Now, he's not saying don't get excited and just be kind of even keel and everything. He's saying don't get intoxicated with anything. Don't cloud your thinking, your spirit, your heart with anything. And so often we do this with things that we really like. And we start to get so wrapped up in the things that we really like that our thinking is cloud, we, clouded. We think that's what I've got to have. Where sometimes we get intoxicated by our discouragement and it clouds our thinking. Peter says you've got to be very careful in how you think how your spirit works, how your heart works, to fix your hope fully on this thing. So he says, here, as you do this, fix your hope completely. Put your hope entirely on this one thing. And this is not the kind of hope that we normally talk about that says, boy, I sure hope this works out kind of like a good wish. This hope is a certainty. We just can't see it yet. But it is for real. It's as real today as it ever will be. As always was. It is real. That's our hope. He says, fix your hope completely on this 
and it's on grace. I'm so often used to the idea that grace is the forgiveness that we get when we become a Christian, and then we try to live in that grace, and that's true. But Peter says, you haven't seen it all yet. You haven't gotten it all yet. He says, set your hope on the grace that's going to be brought to you in the future, right? The inheritance that's waiting for you. You don't have it yet. It's yours, but you don't have it yet. And then I love the expression he says here, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. He doesn't say, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be given you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the one that will be brought to you. It's already yours. So maybe you've had the experience of buying something online. Go to Amazon or eBay or something like that, and I say, purchase. And then I get this little note that says, here's your tracking number. So immediately I go to the website and I say, track that package for me. And the great discouragement that says, oh, the paperwork hasn't arrived yet, so we don't actually know where your package is, but we know it's coming. But then eventually, okay, now it's in the warehouse. It's left the warehouse, and it's somewhere out in the country. I don't know where it is. You know, and I, I like it a lot more when it says, okay, today it's here, and today it's here. The moment I said purchase, that book or whatever it was, was mine. I just don't have it yet. But it's mine, because I bought it. And now I'm waiting for it to be delivered, and so I can track its progress to me. Peter says, that's your inheritance in Christ. The moment you put your faith in Christ, that inheritance that's beyond comprehension is yours. It's as much yours then as it is in eternity. You just don't have it yet. And how desperately I want to have that tracking number that says, could I track its progress toward me, right? I'd like to know how close is it now. I live in the dark. I live in a cloud. I can't see its progress toward me, but it is mine. He says, set your hope fully on this inheritance that's already yours. It just hasn't arrived yet. And he says, given that reality, live according to it. And, and so much of First Peter then is saying, here's how to live according to that, that reality that's true now. You just can't see it very well. And the first thing he says is be holy. Live a holy life because of this new reality, because of who you are in Christ. And it's true, even though I look in the cloud and I don't see it yet, but he says, live according to that. Live according to this reality. You see, even though current circumstances often clouded away, so I can't see it, I already have amazing riches in Christ. Someday they'll be brought to me. I can't see them yet, but that doesn't make them any less real. I already have, you as you put your faith in Christ, you already have this amazing inheritance protected for you and you protected for it. And one day, it'll be revealed to you. I know I make two real failings in life, uh, among many, but these two, I hope in other things. I put my hope in so many other things. Uh, maybe you do too. I think among us, we put our hope in the approval of people, right? We say, if this person would approve of me, would say I'm okay, then I can feel better about myself and who I am. And sometimes, tragically, that person is dead. And yet we're still hoping for their approval somehow to make us feel okay about ourselves. Some of us put great hope in success. We think, you know, if only the world could look at me and say, you know, this person has done well in life. Some of us put hope in the success of our kids and say, if only the world would look at me and say, wow, you must be so proud of your kids, then I would feel okay. We put our hope in grandkids and marriage, all sorts of things we put our hope in. Peter says, put your hope fully in this, in the grace that will be brought to you. Now, is it wrong to look forward to things? Certainly not. Is it wrong to hope for things? Certainly not. That's a good thing. 
Just don't put your hope in them. Right? Don't pin your identity on these things that we hope will happen in this world. So in, uh, in the Alps, there are rocks all over the place. And, and so imagine that you're in the Alps. The clouds are blocking away all the mountains. So all you're seeing in this area around us. And imagine that these rocks are valuable things. And, and so we all want to get as many rocks as we can, so we make our piles of rocks. And, you know, I look around, and boy, that person's got a lot of rocks, and that person doesn't have many. At least they have more than them. And when that person's off hunting more rocks, I go and take a few of their rocks and put it in my pile. And we compare our piles. And then the cloud goes away, and there's the Matterhorn. And we're worried about who has a pile that's two feet tall or three feet tall or something like that. And there's so many rocks up here, it's overwhelming. That's how foolish I am to put my hope in this pile of rocks down here. It just is plain stupid. It doesn't make any sense at all. I put my hope in these little things when I already own the mountain. Just can't see it yet. Peter says, put your hope up there. Stop hoping in these little things down here because, he says, I'll guarantee you, they will perish, they'll be spoiled, and they will fade, but that one won't. And it's a lot bigger anyway. <laughs> it's wonderful stuff, and it's all yours, and it's guaranteed. Stop putting your hope in other things. It's taken me a while to realize this in life. There are people in life who have a lot of things that they could put their hope in. They're good in sports. They're good in academics. They're good in getting people to like them and approve of them. They're, they seem to have just an overwhelming sense of being positive and, and confidence in life, and just all these things seem so good to them. And that's actually a very scary place to be. Because we are so tempted to put our hope into all these different things. And so Jesus actually says how hard it is for somebody who's rich to get into heaven. Why? Because they have so many options to put their hope in things. And Jesus said, look out if that's you. No, so if, if you look at your situation, you say there's a lot that I have that I could hope in. Thank God for those things. But then pray that God would keep you from putting your hope in those things because they will disappoint, they will fade, they will spoil, they will perish. And sadly, many people perish with the things in which they put their hope, because they never put their hope in Christ and what could have been theirs. So if you have many things in which to put your hope, thank God, but ask him to protect you from putting your hope in those things. Maybe you're more aware of what you lack than, than what you have. And what I do in that is I stop hoping. I, you know, maybe you have this experience. I'll pray the same prayer again, but you know, not much has happened over the months that I've been praying this, and so I start to think, and so nothing really is going to happen today. I mean, maybe someday, but I stop hoping. It's a little bit like some of us, uh, how we deal with Michigan in the winter. And that is, if you'd never expect any good weather, once in a while you get a great surprise, and it's nice. <laughs> If you wake up every morning and you think, boy, it sure would be nice if we were clear today, if we were sunny, if we were kind of warm, you're so often disappointed. You know? So the easy thing to do is to say, I'm not going to expect anything, and once in a while I have a good surprise. Sadly, I think some of us do that in our Christian lives. Right? We protect ourselves from disappointment by not hoping for anything. What a sad way to live. What a way to dishonor God. Peter says, set your hope fully on this thing. You can be completely confident of this thing that is for you, this inheritance that's beyond your comprehension, protected for you, it could never go away. You're protected for it. Set your hope fully on that. Don't go around moping in the dark saying, I never see God do anything. 
in faith say, my God has more for me than I could ever imagine. So I don't have to worry about what's in this cloud right here. It's true for many of us. Life circumstances cloud the hand of God. They cloud what's ours. We, we can't see it. We get discouraged. Sometimes we like what we see and so we stop looking for God. We live in a cloud. Peter says, even though the cloud so often hides it, you already have amazing riches in Christ when you put your hope in him. Set your hope fully on those things. And he says, when you do that, you will have a joy you don't even know how to talk about. Because we have an inheritance, I don't know how else to describe it. I don't have words. All I know is I'm not even sure I'll live through the experience of seeing it. It's so great. That's what is ours. The moment we say, I entrust myself to my God through Christ. So a man many years ago wrote a song, uh, and it was a song in response to major tragedies in his life that hid the hand of God in his life. Uh, the song is, It Is Well, and, and, and he had experienced the loss of his fortune and the loss of his family. And he said, my life circumstances has, have clouded out my understanding of God and, and, and his work in my life. I can't see his hand. And yet he says, it is well with my soul. And I hope you understand that in a poetic sense, this is emphasis by understatement. He's not saying that, well, my life is well now. He's saying my life is beyond expression. It is so good in spite of these difficult times because of the reality that is already mine and someday God's gonna peel back the clouds like a scroll and I will see it. If you know the song, would you sing it with me as we rejoice in the good news that is ours even in a time when circumstances may cloud it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Would you please stand as we sing the last verse as he describes the clouds being peeled back and we can finally see our Savior face to face. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul.
It is well, it is well with my soul. There are many things in life that I cannot tell you. I can't tell you what tomorrow will bring for any of us. Maybe tragedy, maybe glorious things. But this I can tell you, that one day the clouds will be separated. We will see our Savior and he will come with the inheritance that is already ours that's been kept for us and we've been protected for it to enjoy forever in his presence. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing salvation. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I'm overwhelmed by the riches that are ours, by the love that you have for us, and all that you have in store for us. And Father, I confess that so often all I can see is what's in the cloud. Father, help me to trust you. Help us to trust you. And Father, even this morning, I pray for those who have never really come to trust you. We spend so much time worried about the small stuff in the cloud. Father, open our eyes that we could see by your grace the amazing inheritance that is ours through faith. And Father, I pray for those that they, they, would, they would choose that today. Father, we thank you so much for all that is ours in your Son. Teach us to look to that future, to live according, it, according to that today. And Father, I pray that you would give us the inexpressible joy of the grace and the glory that is ours in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. May you go in his grace today.